All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we know that you came and rescued us and that we were left separated, disconnected from our main family, which is you. Uh, So, Father, you came down to uh, earth and you lived life with us and you got dirty and you struggled and suffered and eventually died and you resurrected and became uh, uh, sovereign over what was lost. And that means that we were rescued completely. And so now we understand why you have such a, a heart for children who have been separated from their family. And so help us here all who have a heart for children to be connected to yours, to your heart, and help us to have a good conversation together and improve our approach on how to help children and represent your heart. Thank you, God. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. So it was one of the questions that I wanted to ask. And by the way, my name is Kent Grieve, and I've uh, had the privilege of working in orphan care uh, work for the last 21 years. And I, along with my wife, was able to travel to Romania back in 1997 to help establish our children's program there, a children's village. Well, one of the questions that I wanted to ask was, is how many orphans do we have in the group? Someone who, if you grew up an orphan, raise your hand. And the reason I wanted to ask that question is because oftentimes in a group that's talking about orphans, we're talking about it from the outside looking in. Does that make sense? If you've never been an orphan, how do you know what an orphan feels like. And we have an expert here in Daniel. He came by our booth yesterday, and we saw him at ASI. Was it the first time we saw you at ASI last year? Was that the first time you've attended? Yeah. Yeah, you've seen, you've seen Rick in the, in the past. And so we asked him if he would be willing to come to our, our group today because he has a very unique perspective, as you can imagine. And I wanted to share, just before we, we, we jump into this, what is, the, what is the orphan text that a lot of people talk about? Pure religion and undefiled before the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. I want to share a quote from Ellen White, second volume of the Testimonies, page 25. It says, When hearts sympathize with hearts burdened with discouragement and grief, when the hand dispenses to the needy, when the naked are clothed, the stranger made welcome to a seat in your parlor and a place in your heart, angels are coming very near, and an answering strain is responded to in heaven. Every act of justice, mercy, and benevolence makes melody in heaven. Every merciful act to the needy, the suffering is regarded as though done to Jesus. When you succor the poor, sympathize with the afflicted and oppressed, and befriend the orphan, you bring yourselves into a closer relationship to Jesus. And that 
quote really stuck in my mind when it said, making melody in heaven. As we befriend the orphan, we have the privilege of making music in heaven. Isn't that neat? To me, that's a really neat thought that Jesus wants us to do that. I wanted to also share a little bit, uh, a few thoughts, just as a way of introduction. And this is not supposed to be a seminar. This is supposed to be a discussion group. And we have some questions to get into and we'll be talking about. But I wanted to ask if the group has seen this book, The Primal Wound. Has anybody seen this book? It's primarily written for adoptive um, families, adoptive parents and adoptees. And my wife and I had the privilege of adopting two children. Um, Our son, we were at his birth, and his 15-year-old mother gave him up. And then when we lived in the country of Romania, we adopted our daughter. Uh, So she was from that country, and she came into our home when she was about five months old. So very small. Now, we didn't know exactly what it was that we were getting into. And, of course, it wasn't until years later that we understood maybe some of the things that we should have done and shouldn't have done and all that kind of thing. But this book, when we were given it, when it was mentioned to us and when we received it, made a profound impact in our lives because of the, of the, the impact that being an orphan has on the child itself. Now, one of the concepts that it brings out is, is that when a child is physically born from their mother, they aren't necessarily emotionally born. Does that make sense? Physically? Yes, but emotionally, they're tied to the mother for about seven months until they are able to actually know who they are as an individual. And then they start to realize that there is, there is an apartness from the mother. But until then, they are very much attached to the mother. And if something happens, if there is a separation that happens... During that time, and even after that time, until the child is able to leave the mother, they have what is called a primal wound. And I wanted to to bring this out because it's important as we work with orphans to realize that it's more than just a name that we place upon them. It's easy just to put a label on it and say, this is an orphan child. But what does it really mean, and what is the significance of being an orphan to that particular child? And I want to read a couple of thoughts from the book, and then I want to open it up to discussion, and then hear from you your thoughts, and also maybe some questions that you have. This says, many doctors and psychologists now understand that bonding doesn't begin at birth, but is a continuum of physiological, psychological, and spiritual events which begin in utero and continue throughout the postnatal bonding period. 
When this natural evolution is interrupted by a postnatal separation from the biological mother, the resultant experience of abandonment and loss is indelibly imprinted upon the unconscious mind or minds of these children, causing that which I call, the author calls, the primal wound. Now, we as orphan care ministers and ministries basically adopt, so to speak, the children. They come into our care, and so we become their caregivers. In a sense, we're adopting these children. And so I'm going to read the next quote, and it says, Adoption, as, as we are orphan caregivers, is a traumatic experience for the adoptee or orphan. It begins with the separation from his biological mother and ends with his living with strangers. Most of his life, he may have denied or repressed his feelings about this experience, having had no sense that they would be acknowledged or validated. He may instead have been made to feel as if he should be grateful for this monumental manipulation of his destiny. Somewhere within him, however, he does have feelings about this traumatic experience. And having these feelings does not mean that he is abnormal, sick, or crazy. It means that he is wounded as a result of having suffered a devastating loss. And that his feelings about this are legitimate and need to be acknowledged rather than ignored or challenged. And I share this with you because I think it's important for us to remember who it is that we're working for. It would be easy just to say, okay, this, this is a child that is, has been abandoned or the child's mother and father have died and we need to do something about it. But it's so important for us to understand where the child is coming from. And that's why it's interesting that unless you as a newcomer are orphaned yourself, we only have one expert today, who's Daniel, who's experienced that from the inside out. And so I'd like to um, include him certainly in the discussion and maybe has a good perspective. I, as an adoptive father, experienced this firsthand with my children. I remember... One of my kids, um, my son, we were at his birth, brought him home, 12 hours old. My wife is a nurse, and we have several nurses here. Nurses know what to do. She was a nursery nurse. She knew how to take care of him, okay? She was an expert at that. Fed him bathed him, and it was time for bed. She tried to comfort him, and he arched his little back and would not be comforted. The primal wound. He could tell that something had changed, something was different about this person that was now taking care of him. And you think about all the orphans in the world and all the trauma that they've gone through. 
And yes, we could just simply say, well, that's, again, a child that needs our care. And I have a heart and a compassion for that child. But unless we give voice and understanding to where these children are coming from, it's easy just to gloss over it and say, whatever I can do is, is great enough for that child, and the child should be thankful and grateful. We as orphan care givers can only, well, we can befriend the orphan, and we can give them the best that we have. And we need for God to do the rest and, and have that good understanding of what is going on in their lives. Does anybody have any comments about that? And then we want to go into some questions uh, related to that. Anybody have an experience that they'd like to share relative to that? Kent, you said that your son later had, fairly soon after, had an experience with the birth mother. Can you describe that a little bit? Um, yeah, when he was a teenager, he was seeking the, the birth mother. Oh, yeah, that's right. Thank you for, for reminding me that. In the state in which we live, the birth mother had to come to our state and, and sign away rights. When she came, and she was a young, a young mother, and when she had the opportunity to hold him, he was contented, he was at peace, and there was this look, and you could see that he was making eye contact with the mother. And it was like everything was right with his world again. And that's something that we have to realize as orphan caregivers that we will only ever be second best to that natural bond, that natural relationship that God created. Such a strong bond. And I think it's important for us to have that understanding. You had, you had something about one of the orphans that, that uh, wrote a book about this. Yeah, I, it reminds me of a story of uh, one of our girls that uh, grew up in the Dominican Republic. Her name was Damaris. And uh, she became, she graduated from college, took psychology, and um, she eventually wrote a book. And... It was interesting to me because in that book she described about her childhood and the things that happened and how she, the things that she went through. And she said, everybody was loving me, but she couldn't get past this concept that Kent is describing. And she said that what I remember, she said, I was surrounded by and I was drowning in love. I didn't know how to how to react to it. She, she found healing, I think, through, you know, going through this and in her life. But it's a, it's a hole in your heart that never 100% heals. And yesterday, Daniel was telling me some things that happened to him. What happened to him was not when he was a little baby. It was actually when he was quite a bit older. And if he's willing to share, I'd appreciate if, if you could just kind of tell this group what happened to you at that young age. And we can do it like an interview. You can just kind of tell up to the point where, where you found a new family. Okay. 
Well, the story is pretty long, but I'll uh, try to yeah. make it as short as possible. Uh, my biological mother died in 1985, um, and so we um, didn't have parents. There were four. Uh, there were actually five of us. Uh, the youngest one had a different father, and so he went uh, with his father, and uh, four of us. Um, we were separated. We were going to go with different family members, but nobody seemed to want anybody. So I was taken with uh, to one of my aunt's house, and uh, while we were there, while I was there, as time went by, I was ten. Uh, she started getting cold and colder and colder, and finally I just realized she no longer wanted me there. So I just put my clothes in uh, like a grocery bag, and I said, Aunt, I'm, I'm leaving because you don't want me here. And she just looked up and said, may it go well with you. That's it. Didn't even stop me, nothing. And so I walked out the door, went back to uh, the little home that my mother had, a little shack, and when I got there, my siblings uh, happened to be there, and the stepfather that was taking care of the other three kids, they, um, he saw me come. And so he's like, oh, I'm going to go to prayer meeting. He didn't say a word, nothing. He didn't tell me welcome back, nothing at all. He, after um, a while, you know, they left for prayer meeting happily. And we thought, well, you know, I guess we'll stay here. The four of us, we started just, you know, playing. I forgot what we did. He showed up back about 10 o'clock at night with a truck. And he loaded up everything. That was his and wasn't his because all I remember the house being completely empty. And he abandoned us without saying a word. So it was the following day that um, I, we called upon some friends and they took us to the Guatemala City Court. And they called uh, three orphanages, um, the government orphanage, Catholic orphanage, and the Adventist orphanage. They, uh, only the Adventist orphanage showed up. And um, the social worker showed up and there was like a love. There was just something special that connected us. And um, my grandmother happened to be there because they had called her that we were there. So she came and she said, well, you're welcome to take the kids, but you can't have them. They cannot leave the country. They cannot be adopted. So the social worker said, well, there's only one way we can do this. I'm sure there's probably different ways to do it, but the way she decided to handle it is, um, can you just sign here that you will never be separated? By this time, my older brother was 11, I was 10, uh, my other brother was 7, and the little girl was 5. So, you know, so we were 5 to 11, and so everybody said, there's no chance for them to be adopted. The, uh, so we left the courthouse that day, and the very next day, as we traveled to the, uh, one of the sponsor homes by ICC, the, um, the social worker said, do you want to be adopted? And we said, well, my brother, older brother and I looked at each other like, there's really no future for us, so sure. And she worked really, really hard to get us a family. And there's a long story between there and then, but um, um, I can share a little more a little bit later. Thanks. It's, it's quite an experience, those of you who have adopted and have been adopted, to go through... Um, and we as Orphan Care Ministries are, are basically doing that, adopting these children. And I thought it would be good for those who have an Orphan Care Ministry, can you tell us a little bit about what it is that you do, 
how you approach the care of orphans, and then we can talk a little bit more about that because I have some questions I want to ask. So I'm going to start with you. Just tell us where your orphanage is and, and what you do, how you take care of the kids. Okay, I will try to be brief. Um, our orphanage, or we don't call it an orphanage, um, a children's home, is um, in Zimbabwe. Right now we have 50 children who live on the, the campus and then we have about 20 more who have aged out, but we continue to care for them and make sure that they have a, a, a home to be in um, and make sure that they're still getting educated um, until they get through. Um, what we are trying to do that, that we found when we, when we took this over about eight years ago is we were able to build group homes um, and have 10 children living in a home with, a, with two caregivers. Um, we're also beginning to take them as infants. So we have babies coming and we have a nursery and then they gradually um, go into the group homes. Um, when we took this over, they were living in dormitories. And the difference it made, I mean, it's still not perfect. It's far from perfect. Um, but the difference it made in having group homes and them getting this extra attention um, was night and day. Um, their self-esteem, um, they're able to learn better, they're happier, um, healthier. We also have now, now they're also being homeschooled basically on the campus. We do have certified teachers because of course the government requires that and it's probably the best thing also. But we found that sending them to the local schools was also just not working. And because they were orphans, um, there's kind of a stigma and the teachers weren't as willing to help them and, and they weren't learning as well. So. Great, thank you. And you had a Ministry in India, right? Mini where? Who had the ministry in No, who had the ministry in India? Yeah, I'm sorry. You move places, right? <laughs> I'm looking back there. Hi, I'm Barbara Grossel, and I work with Bill Dahl in India. We have um, a school, and uh, we also don't call ourselves an orphanage, because if we did in India, we wouldn't be allowed to exist. So we're just a school and hostel for children. Uh, we have um, about 80 children in our school, but most of them aren't orphans. Most of them are have either one parent or the other. Um, but we do have um, around 10 to 15 full orphans. We have a hostile situation, um, and I can totally understand because it's not the most ideal situation, but it is what it is. And um, our children are given full 24-hour care. We have um, school for them where they go to school with our local day, day school children. So um, it's a combination of day school and hostel children. And we have grades um, kindergarten through 12th standard. And we do have teachers, but our greatest need is for teachers because of the Indian laws. They're very, very strict. And uh, not many people want to come to the jungle and teach. We're... Um, Eight miles from the nearest uh, road that has cement on it, and it takes 45 minutes to drive that road. 
<laughs> so you can imagine. So it, we're right, you know, we're in the jungle. So it's hard to get people to come and take care of the children. But we do have a team there. We have a lot of student missionaries who come, and they are our salvation because they love the children. They're with the children, and um, it really makes a huge difference to have people from international countries who come and help us care for the children. Well, I'll just briefly mention about International Children's Care, which we refer to as ICC, uh, and that um, we also do not use the word orphan with our children or on the campuses or anything like that. However, we tend to talk about and use that word because when we're talking to other people in other countries, that does evoke a certain amount of emotional response and connection. Um, I remember I was going through a line in Walmart and I had a whole bunch of stuff and they're like, wow, what are you getting all this stuff for? And I, we were getting a container ready to go to a project and I said, well, I'm, we're buying some stuff for a, a container we're sending to an orphanage. And you know, the, the, the person just tears started coming out, you know, <clears throat> the, the concept of, of this just is so emotional with most people. But our children are no longer orphans <laughs> that are at our projects. And, and I agree with the concept, I'm sure all of you agree with, that it, the best thing is to have them with homes and with parents. And so uh, the concept that my mother uh, you know, worked with starting 41 years ago was to have homes and we hire native house parents and usually an aunt. Usually there's two or three people that are caregivers in a home with about 10 children. It could be 8 to 10, 11, depending on the situation. And then it's kind of like, sometimes I refer to it as managed foster care because, you know, it's kind of foster care in a way. Um, a lot of the developed com countries now are trying to force foster care down the throats of third world countries, and it doesn't work very well. And so, but in ours, we have the homes, and the children are living in homes with parents, and those parents are the foster parents of those children, but they're supervised much more close, closely. And in the foster care system, children tend to move, you know, from home to home. In ours, they don't. Now, it's true that we're all human and no, nobody's perfect, and so there is some turnover of parents. But if a parent leaves, the child is still there, and they're with their friend, friends and their school, and they're, you know, the same people. So that is at least better. Now, nothing can uh, substitute for a good home. Now, many of the children that the ministries see didn't have a good home doesn't mean that they didn't have parents because they did have parents. <laughs> Everybody had parents, right? But uh, sometimes uh, we're living in a world that just is so, so, so cruel. And, uh, and so they didn't have that home that they really needed. And, uh, and so I think one of the goals of the ministries is to try to do something to get as close as we can to what they really need. And 
And so today we just kind of wanted to talk about some of these things, help us to get a better understanding and maybe some ideas and, and uh, share with each other as to what this means and what we can do. So it seems like the majority of folks in here would are interested in orphan ministries. Uh, you've heard from three that are actually working in this field. But let's say that you are interested, and many of you are. Perhaps you've gone on a church mission trip, and you've found a group of children who are in need. You're interested in helping in some way. Is this a good idea to start your own ministry for the group of children that you find? And I'm going to open that up for discussion. I'm, I hope you don't kill me, but I'll take this subject a slightly... I mean, there's obviously foreign kids that need a lot. But I've worked for the last eight years on the Navajo Reservation, and I was a foster parent. Most of the time I was a single foster parent working full-time. I did have babysitters. I got 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds to watch them while I was working. And I think every single reservation in the United States is in the same boat. The, the district I was working with had, I think, over 1,000 children that they were supervising. And I was the only foster parent. Most of the children were placed in children's homes or less than ideal family homes. So thinking of orphanages, let me, I mean, yes, I agree. We, I never call them orphans. I've never had an orphan. All of my children have had parents that because of alcohol or substance abuse. I mean, I may have had a kid that had a dead father or a dead mother, but I've never had a child that had no living parents. And I counted once, I think I had 40-something different children come through my house. There is a need here for orphanages, children's homes. So just something for you guys to think about. The orphan among us, in other words. You know, it's, it's something to go to the ends of the earth when you forget that we're within our own borders. Mine, <clears throat> mine, I have permanent legal guardianship because they're both Indian. And to get by around the Indian Child Welfare Act, the native judges can overrule and place a child, but you can't actually adopt an American Indian child. So the idea, those of you who are interested, how many of you who came are interested in starting your own ministry? One? Anybody else? Two? Okay. Great. Great. The rest of you then, I guess, are either involved already currently or say, okay, where, where can I help? How can I help? What can I do? What is the issue that these children are facing? So is it good to start your own? Or would you suggest to join a ministry that's already functioning. I've had a lot of people ask me the same question. They're like, oh, we want to start an orphanage here or there. And I always suggest, please come and work with us or some other people because it's such a wide um, 
a wide field where you really need a lot of competences. And to think you have those competences, um, you may have some of them, but you will not have all of them. And it takes a, a, it takes a world to make a family, or it takes a lot of different advice, and it takes experience to do this. Otherwise, you will be in trouble very soon. So she mentioned something about competencies. Uh, those of you involved in, in ministry, what kind of competencies would you need to have for those who say, doesn't matter, I'm going to do it. You know, this is my passion. It has been my passion all my life. I want to I start a ministry. What kind of competencies are required? I do have people asking the same question with me. And... Um, I like to encourage people to follow their heart and, their, and follow where the Lord leads. In fact, that's why you are here, that's why you're here, and that's why we're here. But I agree with what you said, that it's, it's a sharp learning curve. And so um, I always tell people, look, I'm willing to work with you. You know, this is not a competition. This is like we all need to do something, you know. And so... If there's a way that we can work together and I can help you do what you want to do, I sure want to do that. And so feel free to talk to to me or to someone else that I could recommend to you. And um, But there are a lot of pitfalls along the way, particularly if you're working, at, well, I was going to say working with other governments, but it might even be harder with the U.S. government. And so there, working with governments is tricky and um, you've heard the stories, you know, like after the severe earthquake in Haiti and so many people went and they're trying to help and people are giving them their children and so they're trying to help and then they get arrested for child trafficking and all I was trying to do is help this poor kid and no, you can't be taking our children, you know. And so there's a lot of things that you need to be careful of along the way. And governments are getting more and more um, strict about these things. Some governments, not. But others, yes. We have a project in India as well. And it's tricky, like you said. Um, some places that we work with, we have to be sort of under the radar because the government likes to tell people, what, no, we don't have a problem with orphans. We don't have that. You know, what are you talking about? And so... Yeah, and I mean, there's, yes, and so there are things that you say, well, okay, and then you have to, if you're going to work there, you may have to work a little bit under the radar uh, in a different way. You have to be careful. But, so my advice is follow your heart, but also be smart about it. I completely agree, and I was there, you know, when I was a lot younger, you know, just wanting to go change the world, go do something incredible for God, and and then after a while, you realize that you really need partnership, you really need other people, otherwise, if you burn out, then it, you didn't do any good, and so... Um, definitely linking up with ministries that are doing the work. And that doesn't mean it takes your fire away. It just means it's a, it's a season for God to show you how to do the work. And then he opens the next door. It may be more involvement with the same organization. It may be that someday you do start your own NGO or something. 
then that would be wonderful. But it's definitely, you know, it's kind of like restaurants. Like you can, the, the, the success rate of a restaurant is very low, you know. So, you know, so a lot of people have the passion. They'll go get that nonprofit, you know, certification or, you know, with the government. And, and then it kind of drops out. And so you do want to just link up. I think that's a great idea. What would be the advantage of someone starting their own as compared to partnering with another organization? Let's say you're interested. What would be the advantage of those of you who raised your hand of, of going it alone as compared to joining with another ministry? Can anybody see an advantage? Yeah, answer that. Yeah, I think yeah, because sometimes you may have a real passion for a particular people in a particular place. And so you start asking, well, are you working in that? No, we don't really have anything there. What about you? Are you working over there? No, I'm not really doing anything there. So you have that passion. Uh, For example, Haiti. I mentioned Haiti a few minutes ago. Um, We work in the Dominican Republic, and a lot of our kids are actually from Haiti because Haiti is... a quite a poor country and they come across into the Dominican Republic looking for a better life, which Dominican Republic is actually a very, very poor country as well. One of the girls that uh, has grown up and now she's graduating from college and she's said, I really would like to do something in Haiti in my, in my birthplace, even though she wants, she's trying to learn French and she wants to go back and help. Great. That's her passion. That's her heart. That's where she should follow. Now, our organization doesn't have any work currently in that country. but And it might not be possible to hook up with an organization that does. That's just one example, you know, of why you may need to try to do something yourself. But that doesn't, that doesn't make what we were saying not true. You still may want to spend some internship time working with another organization, getting some mentoring, finding out how to go through the hoops and the ropes. I was going to also comment that uh, one way about going about um, doing orphan ministry and stuff might be how someone can effectively reach some people and how, but another way probably won't reach them as effectively. Um, We were reading with my mission group, NAPS, we were reading that um, when Paul was in Barnabas split and Paul took Timothy um, that he Timothy had to be circumcised to speak to the the Jews and to um, minister to them but if he wasn't do if he hadn't changed or found a different way of ministry then he wouldn't have been able to effectively reach them so I think it's just figuring out figuring out like your niche and how sometimes some people's niche won't be um, not everybody can do that like you know and figuring out your piece of the puzzle and how that fits in with the world and what's already there and um that's why it would be a a benefit to going alone but still having partnerships so if someone decided to go it alone what kinds of things would they need to be aware of what kinds of things are involved i would say the first thing you really need to understand is the government rules um, our orphanage, one of 
the places that were started. Um, simple mistake, not, you know, it kind of just happened. Um, taking over from another group that couldn't do it anymore. Um, and the people who were doing, this was many years ago, and we've learned a lot since then, but um, in India, you're not allowed to have a child from another state in another home if that child doesn't have a legal guardian. So you can't take someone from Arissa and put them in Tamil Nadu if that child doesn't have a legal guardian that says it's allowed to be there. Very simple thing that somehow we missed out on that. And so we had students from other states in our in our orphanage. Well, they came in and closed us down at that place. Um, luckily, we could move. We, we have you know, continued since then. We just had to redo. But it was very devastating for our children to have to leave the home they were in and go to another home because we made the mistake of not understanding the government rules very well. And it's it's just very important wherever you are that you totally um, understand, even if you do go under them a little bit or around them, you need to know what they are. And you need to know what you need to do to protect the children because, as you were saying, they are now your family in a certain sense. And so you need to take care of them, and you don't want that to happen to them. Anything else to add to that? Certainly knowing the government. Yes. I think one of the biggest things, whichever culture or nation you choose to work in, understand the culture don't just go into some people group that you have no experience with. You know, whether you're in the deep south or you're in the, you know, ghetto, taking kids from the ghetto. I don't know where those kids go, but understand who these kids are, where they're from, what they, I mean, okay, babies maybe don't come with much uh, background knowledge of anything, but there is prenatal influences. Um, you know, understand that these kids come from homes like on the, I'm from, mine have all been from the res. Sometimes my three and four and five-year-olds will be talking about stuff that to a Western mindset makes no sense. But once I was there for a while, I understood, you know, outhouses and, you know, just simple everyday life, hitchhiking and this, the stuff that we in our Western mind don't, but know the culture, wherever the culture is. And what about uh, banking? Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to follow up on the culture issue because that is so important. I see all the ladies nodding their heads that are working in this because it's really important. And that's one of the things that uh, we learned early on, and my mother uh, was guided, I think, in a good way that, for example, we have volunteers that want to work, you know, and they'll come, we get student missionaries, we have people who say, I'd like to go for a year, or whatever. Early on, we decided that the care of the children would not be done by foreigners. So, yeah, we have some of the, in the teaching environment, in the industry environment, in the campus, you know, maintenance and things like that, and construction, things like that. But the actual care of the children in our organization, we decided should be done by native people to that culture. That's kind of 
and now I'm talking about in another country. You know, so we don't take people from this country to go to Africa and be the caregivers or to India to be the caregivers there because we can find caregivers there. Now, there are some countries where you really can't find caregivers in those countries. So having said that, I have to put that caveat in there because there's some situations where you're in a nation or in a country where uh, it's almost impossible to find the caregivers. And so then there's exceptions. But I'm just saying we have found it to be important because they will then uh, help the children to be able... Because those children are going to be living in that culture when they grow up. So they need to be prepared for that. They need to know how to cook with the way they cook and eat the way they eat because when they leave, they're not going to be living there forever. They're going to be living out there with everybody else. That's kind of the reasoning behind that. And then there's issues that I mentioned about banking, money transfer, uh, personnel, and staff holidays and stuff like that, and, and staff pay. Because in Guatemala, don't we have a 14th month? Uh, you have to, a 13th month, you have to pay. have to pay an extra month's salary. And You want to talk to that? <laughs> well, there's... You're opening a big can of worms there. But yes, banking and finances is a, is, are issues that have a lot of ramifications to them. And so that's one reason that it's difficult to, to do your own thing because people want to be able to give money, but they want to make sure that it's accounted for properly and that there's accountability. And our government, if you do it through government channels and everything... Our government allows people to give money to other places. That's okay. You can do that without it being an official organization. But as soon as you start doing transfers internationally, especially in recent uh, times, um, banks are now being really careful, and you may not even be able to get your money there. That even happened to us recently. We transferred some money to Mexico, and it was into a kind of a new account. And we had a, a hard time getting access to the money because uh, they want to make sure it's not going to a terrorist group or to the cartels or to something else because moving cash is the biggest issue with crime. And so that's a big issue with nonprofit organizations. You hear the word, you hear NGO, that means a non-governmental organization. That's just what we refer to it in, in this industry. <laughs> So sending money to Africa or to India is very tricky. India especially now is with the FRCA thing is very difficult. <laughs> Just a, a little bit of a thing. We had a, a problem there because the government decided that from now on you had to report every year online. But they didn't inform us that. And we were... Are not we, but the people there that we sponsor were happily reporting, as they always had, on the government forms to the government, and they took it away. And they said, no, the law now is that you had to do it online, and you haven't done it online for two years. We don't know where the paperwork is. We never got it. So you're, you lost it. You have to get it again. <laughs> now, hopefully, I hope that's... You, you can look into that make sure that... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and we can get it back. But it's those kinds of things are where 
everyone who works in this, we have to be really tricky. Uh, I mean, the, the thing is real tricky. We have to know how to navigate through that. And it also ensures that if you're a donor, you can be sure that your money is used properly and that it's accounted for. And so if money goes to India, we have to make sure that they spent it on the thing that they were supposed to spend it on. And because the donor wants to know that. And they want to be, that's how, if, if you're wanting to set up an organization like this, you need to make sure that you have that kind of accountability. Now, having said that, you can help people without having an organization. You can do it without being real official about it. It just is going to be more difficult and you might be able to, to do it through other channels. Sometimes you can find an umbrella organization that is willing to help you to get the money there to, and help you be accountable for it. And some of those things, too, can work in some cases. Good. We don't have that much time left, and so I'd like to open it up for your questions. Um, so it could be ministry you know, amongst ourselves, asking questions amongst ourselves, or it could be someone who's interested in, in orphan ministries and you have questions for the experts, those who are doing it. So anybody a question? Okay, so the question was, can we uh, still transfer money through the general conference to a self-supporting group? Does anybody want to, to answer that, take that on? <laughs> My answer would be that yes, if that self-supporting group is a recognized and approved entity by the general conference and, and so for example if you want to send money to a place in india or africa if that place is recognized there by the local conference and they're willing to say yes we're okay giving money to it yes that'll work um, but i would say that it generally does take quite a long time for the money to reach yes and we're all friends here there is corruption out there within church entities. And uh, so I won't say any more about that. <laughs> Another question. What is your selection process for the mothers and fathers? It's kind of an SOS Kinderdorf um, idea that you're using, which is excellent. Um, it's a fantastic program. Um, how do you select the mothers and fathers or the families that you that you um, have? SOS Kinderdorf out of Austria is a good organization. They've been around for, I don't know, 50 years or more, I think. Uh, they are not a Christian organization, even though they are Christian-based. And many of their leaders in different parts of the world will tell you, well, they're not Christian, but I am, and I'm going to run this like a Christian organization, right? But um, to answer your question, that is one of the most difficult things facing uh, organizations who, who give care to children that have been abandoned or orphaned, is to find the people that have the passion and that are the right kind of people to use. And so uh, we use... Basically, the method that we use in our organization is we recruit people through whatever means, let's say through the internet or online, social media, in churches, from pastors and things like that. Once we get the, then we start a, a selection process. And uh, in, the, in the countries where 
I would say they're a little bit more organized and developed, and we can do it. Ideally, we have them, the potential candidates have a psychological evaluation, a written psychological evaluation by a psychologist that give us the results. And then we evaluate those results, and then we get recommendations from different people. One of the things uh, that my mother instituted and, and my wife, who is in charge of that program now, is the surprise visit. So you go to the home of the potential. Once, they, once you're kind of narrowing it down, you go and visit them at home when they least expect it because you want to know what their home is really like, not when they're, you know, oh, they're coming, quick, you know. <laughs> Kids, be quiet, you know. Be good or I'm going to, you know. No. So you, you go there and you visit them to find out how they live and how they really are because the way they're going to present themselves is probably the way they want you to, to understand them. But the way you might find them may be a little bit different. And we've had situations where they, our administrator said, man, I thought I had a really good candidate. Everything really checked out. I go there and, oh, my goodness, I wouldn't want them living on our campus because their homes are, like, you know, really dirty and unhealthy. So that's kind of a process. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Our, our system, and, and we haven't really talked here about it, but our system is to, to get a campus a minimum of 20 or 30 acres. Some of our campuses have over a thousand acres. So a big campus where we then build homes, we have a church, we have a school, we have a farm, kind of a children's village type of thing. And so it's a lot like SOS, except one big difference is we are spiritual-based and we have fathers. So SOS doesn't have fathers. They decided years ago they were having too many problems with men and they kind of gave up on that, so they use only women. And um, not all of their administrators agree with that policy. So I've talked with many of them, and, but that's their policy. And it is difficult. We, you know, you, we're human. We're, you know, it's hard. But um, we do feel like the ideal situation is for children to have a mother and a father because it gives them that, that role model so that they can be they can have a normal family when they grow up and they, they age out of the program. And by the way, we also believe in what you were saying, and that is to provide a, a way for the children to become independent beyond the age of 18. And that is also very tricky in some countries because some countries literally tell us you cannot have 18-year-olds and older on your campus because they're considered adults, so if they do anything to another child, that's a crime in our country, so you can't have them there. And we can often figure out ways to work around that. And you can talk to me privately afterwards. I can give you some of those ideas. And we have, I think right now, three different countries, four different countries that are available for mission groups. We don't have a lot of them. So uh, we have, <laughs> it's a complicated thing. And that's a whole other topic about the impact of other people coming onto a campus. We want to keep that impact as soft as possible. So we only allow fairly small groups, maximum usually of 25 people, and depends on the country because some of them we don't have room for more than maybe 15. 
And then the interaction with the children is kept to a minimum. But there is some interaction, mostly in meetings and church and things like that. So, But we do, and so you can contact us. I think you talked about a possible group, and, and we only allow one group at a time. And so you have to kind of reserve it ahead of time. Right, Rick. Uh, the idea of mission groups, come to any group and any uh, mission you know, organization that works with orphans and, and ask what their policies are and what they do, because it might be varying a little bit based upon some experience and, and also the type of program that is being run. I wanted to comment on the impact of fathers. The, my, my older one was four when I got her, and... I was single at that point. The the younger one I was given as a baby. I mean, she was a baby when she was given to me, a month old. So she's a little bit different category. But when I did get married and had a father in the home, the discipline issues were a lot less. So I think, yes, in your homes, if you can figure out how to have a family Somehow, especially for the girls, there's something with the rad issue that they will, they may never really bond to a woman. But both of those girls, my, they're both girls, have bonded to my husband more than to me. And I'm like, wait a second, I'm the one that put all the work into you. But there's something about that father figure that somehow they can overlook some of the rejection with the father. And it's an interesting thing, the book, The Primal Wound, the birth mother connection to the child. It could be that that was a, a connection that it's like there'll, there'll never be really another mother in my life, so I'll bond with, the, with him, if that makes sense. I don't know. Anyway, another, another question. We have maybe just, just a couple minutes before we uh, finish up. An answer. Well, I have a question, uh, and then we can skip the question. Someone else has another question. But I'm just wondering, for most of you, what can we do to draw you into this work? Because it's so hard sometimes to make that connection. Either you're just unsure, and or we just haven't worked hard enough. So maybe you can give us some ideas. I mean, we have a magazine here that you can take, and we've got this uh, little info card that you can fill out, and that will help us to start connecting with you. But maybe you've got some ideas that we're just missing something that you could say, hey, could you do this or try this? Um, I, the thing is, I think a lot of youth are interested in helping with this. And um, I know some of the concerns about um, teenagers and stuff going is liability, one, and two... Um, separation and stuff with the kids and like making sure that not too many people are in and out of the kids lives so that they have some stability and um, which I understand and I completely like psychologically and I totally understand but I think um, um, having opportunities for people who are younger to go and intern in maybe um, some different organizations to because um, a lot of people, they want to get involved in mission work, and they're trying to figure out what's best for them and how God can use them. And being able to have the opportunity to go out and do maybe a month or 
a six-week intensive with at an orphanage somewhere would be a good way of helping this generation, this new generation who's going to take over to be pumped up. And even if it's not orphanages or orphan ministry they go into later, they have a better idea of how um, they can be useful later in, in terms of mission work. I don't think there's anything in our church that is an umbrella for an, the orphanage ministry. And um, I know I have an interest in supporting uh, this kind of work. I'm too old to do much myself anymore. But, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know if I'd be very good at it. But anyway... Um, from my perspective, and I have some friends that are very keen on orphanage work, but when it comes to any money that we have, we're responsible for what we do with the money that God has given us because the money belongs to God. And I'm particularly concerned that where my money goes, it's being used correctly. And now, for instance, with the ICC, I remember being in Oregon, and it was your parents that started that program. And I have no question about uh, this being a a verifiable program, and you've done work for many years. But there are other groups that um, I don't know. I, and I, I have a friend in Washington, D.C. that's gone out on her own, and she's done work, just started from scratch, and has done wonderful work with um, a number of orphanages. And um, But there are, are plenty of fly-by-night con- places that um, they go for a little while, and then it falls apart. And so I wish that there was some kind of, some department in the general conference or, or maybe just NAD where you could kind of pull together. I, I just love the idea that GYC has pulled young people together. I wish there was something under NAD that could pull an umbrella together for orphanages that, that groups that they've... They, their books have been checked or that I can know that if my money goes to a certain place that it's going to be taken care of. I don't know if you can do that or not. One comment, too, is that Larry Evans, who is a vice president of the General Conference, has a ministry that they've started called Possibility Ministries. He has a booth, and if you go by and talk with him, yeah, he is, but he still is working at the General Conference. And uh, that's kind of what, they, now they don't go and audit these organizations and everything, but they are calling the organizations together that work for disadvantaged groups of people. And one of the task forces that they have created is called Orphan Ministries. And so, but they have one for the blind and then they have, they have like about four or five different ones. And so it is an attempt, an early attempt to kind of go in the direction you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Possibility, possibility Ministries. Not, not disabled ministries, but possibility ministries. Yeah. Just want to really quick answer my new friend's thoughts. Um, we are trying to connect in that way in your generation 
in a way that you can be tangibly involved, tangibly involved. And one word that we're using is ambassadors. So if any of you would like to get hands-on involvement, that's a first step. So make sure you fill this in and maybe write in there, I want to be an ambassador. And that that will get you in the ground actually doing the mission work uh, here in America as a starter. It looks like it's time. The timekeeper's back there telling us we need to stop, right? (laughs) But please come by our booth, your booth. What is is your booth number? 505, ours is 350, and I'm sorry that, uh, that our friend here left a little early, but uh, you'll find her. But if you'd like more information, have more questions specifically, come talk to us because we'd be happy to, to share. And thank you, Daniel, for coming and sharing your story. And let's close with prayer. Gracious Father, thank you that you are the father of the fatherless and that you have placed us each in a position where we can help children maybe from a distance and maybe up close as we, uh, as we contemplate what gifts you've given us and what abilities. I just pray that you'll direct in the orphan care work throughout the world and especially as your church involves itself and as we as individuals get involved as well. Continue to bless us and as the Sabbath approaches, may we prepare our hearts for worship and for continued fellowship together. In Jesus' name. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.